So, John, I've got a question because it's not even 9 o'clock. 9 a.m., that is. And we're talking about beer. Does that seem inappropriate? Uh, is there a proper time of day one should start thinking? <laughs> There's no bad time to talk about beer, in my mind. In your mind. Uh, talking about beer is is any time of the day or night, including in your dreams and wake up in the morning. And there's no bad time to brew beer either. I'm, I'm a morning person, and I don't mind starting at 7 o'clock in the morning because it's a lot of work. If you've been listening to this season of Beyond My Day Job, I'm bringing you into the business behind the craft beer industry. And today, we bring you an experienced personal view on home brewing. Why? Because the passion, creativity, equipment, and time investment that one person puts into their own small batches of beer, well, it's an accurate micro view into the mindset of these commercial craft brewers we're also covering this season. So today, we'll break it down for you. My childhood friend, John Huber, has been kicking out really tasty batches for his enjoyment and others for nearly 30 years. John's going to summarize and walk us through the full process of making beer at home. From choosing raw materials like barley to some of the equipment he uses, all the way to the finishing stages utilizing bubbly CO2. Because as you heard John say, there's no bad time to talk about beer. I'm your host, Lonnie Miller, creator and producer of Beyond My Day Job, and this is Season 5, The Craft Beer Inquiries. I guess I have this rule... When you're brewing beer, you have to drink beer to make beer. So usually about noon, I switch from coffee to beer while I'm when I'm making my beer. So, but you start with coffee when you start with beer. coffee, yeah, because. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, to that end, how long have you been brewing, home brewing? I calculated twenty-eight years, not solid, but on and off for twenty-eight years. I started out like any home brewer. Um, someone offered me a homemade beer and I had never heard of that before. And I, uh, I was fascinated that it actually tastes like beer. So I had it in my mind to learn how to make beer. And eventually I did. Invite and I, I subscribed to uh, homebrew magazines for amateurs. And I learned a lot from reading those articles. And uh, I really enjoy making the beer and I'm less scientific than I used to be. I'm a little more um, relaxed and uh, unrushed. Um, I make the recipes that work for me. I don't really experiment too much. But so you're, you're making them for you, not for others. Yeah, but uh, now that my uh, son is of drinking age and he's currently at home with me, he and I are enjoying making beer together. So it's kind of a bonding thing. That's cool. That's cool. All right. So for the benefit of our listeners, this season, as we're talking about the business behind craft beer and all things related, we thought we'd bring John in to school us with 28 years of homebrew. I think you've been around in many of the uh, brew pubs in the nation, most likely, given the emergence of them over the past probably 15 years or so from the research. But you've got some chops here. So John, you've chosen some terms or concepts for our listeners. So just kind of want to make sure we're all clear as to the end goal here. So by the time they get done listening to you on this, um, are they going to be able to make beer? 
like tomorrow after uh, <laughs> listening to your interview? What I would say is the only thing I can do today for people is maybe to pique your interest, but the best way to learn is to visit your homebrew shop and tell them you're just starting out and they'll give you the, <clears throat> the basics, simple, I call it the just add water recipe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a little page of instructions and give it a try. It's um, you can start out simple and, and always get more and more complex. That's the, that's the fun part about brewing. I like that. That's that each was... time you go to the homebrew store, you're allowed to buy one more piece of equipment <laughs> to have fun with. Some more tools. <laughs> so it's engineering and chemistry and cooking and obviously drinking. So the, it is funny how often what else is there? <laughs> the the, uh, the the just the mirror when you cut it to its core, it, it is one big chemistry experiment. Yeah. All right. Okay. So you've chosen uh, five key concepts with related terms and and meaningful uh, things for us to know if we're going to get into this uh, craft hobby. So why don't you start us off? So what I'll say before I start is that beer has is like a four-legged stool. It has malt, hops, yeast, and water. Um, and there's a German beer purity law that was written back in the ages called the Reinheitsgebot, uh, where you are not allowed to make beer except using uh, malt, water, and hops, which they actually didn't know about yeast back then. So if you drink a German beer, it's going to have, culturally, it's going to have more purity. It's going to be more, more basic beer and more refined if you go to a country like Belgium, they do, they're sort of the flower child of the beer world. They put Belgian candy sugar and spices and all kinds of stuff in their beers and um, because they like, you know, they're sort of a free spirit country when it little, comes to their beer. A little more experimenting. So, so let's talk about malt. Okay. Um, malt is predominantly barley. Um, <clears throat> they grow the barley grains in the field, deliver them to a malt uh, malt warehouse where they turn them into malt. Um, they spread them out on, a, on the floor and they hose them down, get them a little wet, and they actually start to germinate right on the floor of the malt. So we're talking uh, the, the dry barley seed grain. Right. They're throwing it on the ground. They're splashing it with a bunch of Inside water. a warehouse, they'll spread them, to, spread them thin on the floor, um, spray them with water, and get them to start growing. Okay. Why? And, and when, it, when it just starts to germinate and it's, the sprout is just starting to come out of the grain, they stop, they stop the growth of that by putting them in an oven and killing them. Kind of like a, they roast them like a coffee bean. Okay. <clears throat> And what that does is um, it provides a, a bunch of starch and um, enzymes in the grain that are perfect for making beer. So that that's what it th that's how they turn it into malt. That right when it sprouts, it's called green malt. And then, um, depending on how much you roast the grain afterwards, 
you get different colors or different shades of of grains. So the, the predominant amount of grain in a beer recipe, they call it basis malt. And that's usually pale, they call it pale ale malt. Mm-hmm. In a five-gallon batch, you might have nine pounds of basis malt. And then there are all varieties of specialty malts that give you the the flavor and interest of your particular recipe. Uh, So I just was going to talk about three big ones that are very common. One of them is crystal malt. And I think of that as um, like a little miniature piece of hard candy inside the grain. It adds sweetness to the beer, depending on how much you add. Um, it's, It's the way they wet kiln it it's kiln in a in sort of like a a pressure vessel and it and it creates a little hard kernel of sugar so they call it crystal malt not because it's clear but because it's um crystallized maybe i'm Got not it. sure okay um the other big category is is a chocolate malt so we're getting darker it's not literally chocolate chocolate is the color it's sort of a a nice mellow brown color it's not burnt but it's um like a roasted chocolate flavor. So, it's, so it's a function of how long they've been putting it in the oven in the kiln yeah right and then the the, the bookend of the spectrum is black patent malt that's essentially burnt to a crisp <laughs> it's a very powerful flavor and so you you don't put a whole lot in your recipe um but that is the malt that gives a stout its dark color. It's black patent malt. There we go. There we go. So the most the most famous, you know, stout, well known stout among beer drinkers and non beer drinkers is the uh, Guinness. Right. Um, Guinness Extra Stout. But it's so smooth; it doesn't taste burnt. That's diff. That. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to that later down okay. in the in hold the on, terms. Lonnie, hold on. So remind okay. me to all right. Bring hold that thought. Okay. So you take your recipe of these different malt malted barley grains, and you what you're going to do is make an oatmeal out of them. You want to we're going to extract that starch and turn it into sugar, and that's called mashing. So the next major category of brewing is the mash step okay um otherwise it's done in a container called a mash ton and what you do is you have to mill those grains um in a in a grinder but you don't want to turn them into a powder you want to just crack them they call it cracking the grains you just want to break them all open and that's it and then when you make your oatmeal or your mash out of them uh, they, it starts um, absorbing the contents of the grain into the water or into the liquid. Mashing involves those enzymes I talked about. Eating the, they begin to eat their own starch. It's sort of like the yolk and the white part of an egg. Okay. The food source for, for the plant is the starch. So the enzymes start chopping those starches down, and as the chains get smaller they turn into sugar, fermentable sugar. Not to get too much into the chemistry, but... Um, yeah, but yeah, but the breakdown, because there's something that comes out of the sugar, right? Right. The, the, 
that's the magic of a mash. Um, so because the enzyme is a living sort of biological process, it occurs at a very specific temperature, which is 150 degrees, more or less. All right. So you want to, you heat up some water and you want to put your grains in there so that when you're done putting all the grains in, that's called mashing in, that you hit your, you hit your temperature. So what the strike temperature does is that tells you how hot do I need to make the water so that when I dump in 12 pounds of, uh, grain at room temperature mm -hmm. they equalize to 150 degrees so it's uh, like a it's okay. a temperature balance so that's mm -hmm. why you have you're concerned about hitting that temperature and the rule of thumb for a five gallon batch of homebrew is uh strike temperature should be about 11 degrees hotter than um the temperature you're trying to achieve okay that that works actually quite well depending on your equipment and how much water you have but uh, so we put our grains in, we've made our oatmeal-like mash, stir it a little bit, get it mixed up, and then uh, you let it sit. And you basically don't have to touch it at that point. You just have to maintain the temperature. So a lot of homebrewers put them in an in a igloo cooler, a big um, Coleman mm. um, drinking cooler, put the lid on, and set the timer for 60 minutes. Hold on for a minute. So not just the raw oatmeal slurry directly in the cooler what 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 is what's it been in up to this point what kind of container well, do you use or vessel um, is this stuff being stirred up in the mash ton is is where you're um, there's a term called doughing in where you're putting the raw grains into the hot water it goes in that container and that usually has a false bottom so imagine you take a colander where you strain pasta noodles, mm -hmm. turn that upside down and put it on the bottom of the container. Uh. And then underneath never sees any grains. So you, you, you add some plumbing to siphon off the liquid from underneath that colander, if that gives you a good mental picture. Okay. That's called a false bottom. And uh, eventually we're going to use that false bottom when we're done mashing. Okay. All right. Um, so, so far I've got the, I've got barley from the farmer, from the field. I went to a malt in, shop, in, a malt, a malt uh, producer. Malt. Yep. And I've cracked it. I've, or so I germinated it. I've, I've dried it, baked yep. it to varying degrees. And then I brought it in and I've added water of yep. specific hot water, hot water, mash, creating mash. a mash. Got it to a temperature takes, that's right. That's right. And it usually takes less than an hour, but um, homebrewer just point. 60 minutes is good enough. You, you know, it's not a business. You're just having fun. So <laughs> yeah. set the timer and you're good. All right. Okay. Uh, then it's time. And, and sort of during that 60 minutes, that's where that magic happens. You're drinking beer? Liter literally. Well, that too, maybe. Usually by the boil, you're drinking beer. We're not at the boil yet. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so when you first when you first dough in and you taste your mash, it's going to taste like uh, unsweetened oatmeal. It's just sort of a dry flavor. 
like bready flavor. You let it sit for an hour and then taste a little bit of it again. It tastes sweet, which is kind of magical to me. It always is magical to me. Um, so the next step to extract those sugars out is called sparging. And there's a term called lauderton, which is the, the container that you sparge in. And for home brewers, they're one in the same. Um, what you want to do is use that grain bed as a filter. So you you let the grain settle down in your in your oatmeal mash down to the bottom. You you draw off the liquid off the bottom and recycle it back to the top. And as you're recycling, the beer is getting more bright and more clear. The, it's called wort. Um, the, is it being filtered in a sense? Um, yes. You, you're, you're using the grain bed itself as a filter, a natural filter. Okay. So you don't want to disturb that filter at this point. So you let it cycle a few times until you get that to run clear. Then you redirect that um, outlet into uh, a kettle to boil with. And you also um, sprinkle on top, usually with a little rain head or some kind of sprinkler, um, hot water at a much hotter temperature to stop the enzyme activity. So you, it's called sparging. And you don't, and the reason that you sprinkle is because you don't want to disturb that grain bed. You want it to work nice for so, you. So I've got increasingly clearer liquid on top of the grain bed. And now yeah. you're putting hotter water, sprinkling hotter water yeah. on top of that water surface. That's right. So we're going to rinse those grains with 170 degree water and extract all of the sugary goodness out of them. Okay. And what's left behind are what are called spent grains. Um, they're, they're not really that sweet once if you've done a good job rinsing them. And, um, they're not, they're, they've sort of, they're no more, they're not useful anymore to the brewer, but a lot of brewers who make large batches will donate or sell or give those to farmers for, for cattle feed. So that's a, ah. a good use of, you know, to recycle those, yes. um, yeah. those grains. There's a sustainability angle. Okay. All right. So what, what comes out of this is called like a malt extract. And um, there's a fun fact about malt extract. Um, that's the sweetness that we're, um, we're, we're ready to go to the next step with. Now we're talking about a liquid still, right? This is yes. still a liquid. Is That's right. Is but not a physical or slurry uh, substance. That's or, right. Okay. But if you go to the homebrew store and ask for dry malt extract, you can buy a powder form of it. And you can skip the entire mash step if you're a, if you're a newbie. Ah, you want to so just got it. That's the just add. At this point, you can do you can do the just add water recipe. Got it. Okay. And they call it spray malt extract. They've actually sprayed it in the air and it dried and and collected to the bottom. Um. So a fun fact about malt extract: during prohibition in the twenties, um, malt businesses needed to continue to make money and it was illegal to sell their product to make beer so they looked for new uses for it 
So what they did was put it in a chocolate milkshake and they call it a malted milkshake. So you can, if you want, go to a homebrew store, buy powdered malt extract All right. and put some spoonfuls in a chocolate milkshake and turn it into a malt, chocolate malt. It won't have an alcoholic. No, it'll have it. the, it'll taste like the sugar the that sugar. you just extracted from your grains. Basically. Got it. All right. Okay. Which that milkshake term does make its way into certain uh, flavors of beer that are sold in the market. Yeah. Mil- milkshake stout. There's, there's also, there's also candies like uh, malted milk balls. If you ever oh, chewed yeah. one of those, that's what malt extract tastes like. If you Got it. Ta- if you so the, the, the punchline of this coming from the malting through the mashing is to arrive at that sweet sugar content that you're trying that's to right. carry into the chemistry experiment. That's right. Because the fermentation step is live yeast, brewer's yeast, eats that sugar, gives off CO2 gas and alcohol. So that's the step that turns it into beer. Now we're cooking. The final okay. step. All right. So we're so we're at the boil now, and yep. you, you take your boil kettle, which has no grains in it. Ideally, if your filter bed worked well, <laughs> um, and at this point you you top it you top it off with a certain to get your volume right, and you have a big kettle full of wort, and it might be uh, eight gallons, ten gallons of um, wort. And wort we're again gonna, is. Wort is unfermented beer. Okay. That's sort of the short answer for that. Okay. Um, we're going to boil this for 90 minutes, and we're going to add hops. So this is the step where we – this is the other leg of our stool now. We've we've worked with water and malt. Now we've got hops. Got it. We're on leg three of the stool. Yep, and, and hops is a um, – is a cone of a of a vine flower. Um, there are many varieties of hops, and each one has its own unique flavor. It's part of the so cannabis just like family. you add, sorry, part of the cannabis family. Uh, I I suppose it is a weed. Yeah, <laughs> it, um, and it grows like a weed. If you grow it in your yard, you might regret uh, because it's hard to get rid of. Okay, <clears throat> and it'll okay. grow the height of a two story building in one summer. A lot of people grow them up their downspout. By the end of the summer, it's up to the second story roof. Okay. Good to know. Um, hops is bitter. And the if you can imagine, um, we're, we're looking for a balance in a beer. So the sweetness from the malt can be cloying in a beer if it's too strong. So you add hops. Um, and hops actually... Uh, not only acts as a preservative, but it it is a bitterness that balances the sweetness of the malt. Um, so the way you get hops into a beer is you boil them, and there is um, is this being hop- boiled, John, in a separate kettle from? Yeah, it's a separate boil kettle. Okay. Um, I have a 10-gallon boiler for my five-gallon batch, basically. Okay. Because you have you have to have room for the amount of liquid that boils off. And also, right when it first starts boiling, you get this big head that if you let it boil over, it's a sticky mess. Ah. So boilovers are well-known among homebrewers. Um, I have a paranoia about that, and I try very hard 
while you're waiting for it to come to a boil, you go off and clean, you know, the mash tun and all right. the equipment you've been using so far. You go back in the garage and there it is boiling over and it's a, it's a mess. <laughs> That's why your wife doesn't let you do this in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, so the oils in the hot flour are what get extracted into the boil and then you throw then you strain off or or throw out the cone question the question the hops you mentioned at the beginning it's a cone plant are you yep. as a home brewer using a cone or are you using some processed version of hops for, um, your, for your process you can buy whole leaf hops okay. which is the they basically pick it off of the vine and they dry it so that it doesn't get spoiled before you use it um, and then they usually vacuum seal those packs. Or you can buy pelletized hops. They come in little pellets. They look like uh, rabbit food or mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, they're smashed, pulverized into little plugs. Um, they're smaller and more compact to ship and to store and to buy. Um, when you put... Uh, whole cone hops in your boil, you have to have a way to get it back out mm. when you're ready to transfer to the fermenter. Um, so some people prefer pellet hops, some people prefer um, whole leaf hops. Okay. You have to put more ounces of whole leaf hops in technically to get the same bittering as a smaller amount of pellets. Because so, the pellets have been compressed and they're dense and more concentrated. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. They the pellets take on water and they swell up um, and they become a slurry. Got it. Um, so, you got so, this, so you got the separate kettle. It's got you know you're boiling the hop, whatever variation, whatever you know, in the wort. Yep. In the wort. Okay. All right. And depending on how long you boil your hops, you extract more bitterness. So the out. I break the hops up into three categories, roughly. Bittering hops, flavoring hops, and finishing hops. Okay. Um, and it, there's no rule that says they all have to be the same variety of a hop. So every recipe might have, you could have three different kinds of hops. If it's an IPA, you generally want to have a variety of hops in there to make it more interesting. Which means I may have a bag of those hop pellets from three different bags that I'm pouring in. Right, three strains. Three strains. Okay. It's right. it's kind of like um, there's different varieties of flowers of the same kind, different rose. If you've ever been to a rose garden, there's different varieties of roses. There are different kinds of hops that have their own, and they're constantly creating new strains to make to try to sell to the beer industry as the next big thing. Got it. Okay. So bittering hops is fermented um, the longest. And you can boil those the full 90 minutes if you want. And that's going to basically add bitterness to the beer. Um, flavoring hops, you've, you put in for a shorter amount of time. And it's less bitterness and you actually get um, maybe some more flavor out of them. And then the finishing hops is all for aroma. Mm. So just like a glass of wine, when you drink a glass of beer... You need to breathe in through your nose while you're taking the sip because the aroma is probably, surprisingly, the majority of the flavor of the beer is the aroma that you're hitting your, your mouth with, hmm. the back okay. of your throat with. Okay. So 
finishing hops could be 10 minutes, usually 10 minutes in the boil. And they, they're purely for aroma only. They don't add any bitterness at all. It's not a long enough boil to add bitterness. I've got a question that you mentioned IPA. So double IPA, triple IPAs, is it a, are the double, the triple in the IPA Indian pale ale? Is it a function of just adding more bittering hops into the formulation? Um, I think a double IPA is higher alcohol. Okay. Okay. It's not. Um, it's not a bitterness level that we're saying. Right. There's a there's a scale they call IBUs, International Bittering Units, and um, there is there is a thought process that IPA should have more and more and more IBUs, and they try very hard to get. You know, you can buy the extracted oil and literally pour it right into the mm. to the boil. Okay. Um, so that's that's the IBU level, but calling something a double IPA is the it's it's more alcohol. It's basically more basis malt. Got it. Okay. All right. To okay. increase the alcohol. Got it. That's uh that's a myth buster that or not a myth buster, that's yeah, per, misperception that I've had. It's gonna yeah. Okay, so we're on to our next category. We um, the boil is finished. We've finished all of our hops. We we strain off of the hops with uh, whatever vessel we've used. Um, lately, what I've been using is a is a stainless steel um, insert, like a little uh, canister that hooks on the side of the boil kettle. So the hops boil inside this uh, stainless steel screen. Of a, of a vessel okay. and you just pull it out and they're out let them drain off and pull and throw them away right so it's that, a nice clean way to get the hops out got it so i'm still now left with what was my wort with the hops you know blended now right into, into the wort okay but the the boiled um is a big part of the chemistry I, i'm not an expert at it but you get something called hot break where the proteins coagulate out of suspension and clump together and drop to the bottom. That's a beautiful thing. You want hot break if you can get it. It's a beautiful um, thing. It's going to help with clarity of the beer and the and um, take out some of the harsh flavors of the grains and leave the good stuff behind. Um, so the boil is an important step. If you get a homebrew kit and it says you don't need to boil, uh, go go to the homebrew store and get a different kit because that mm. one's. That one's no good. The Mr. Beer <laughs> stuff. Um, if you don't boil it, uh, for the biggest downside is no sanitation. You need to really have completely sterile wort ready to ferment. Because if you let wild yeast into that, because mm -hmm. yeast is all around us in our lives. Okay. Micro, they're little micro biological processes all around us, on our bodies, on our clothes, on the countertop, everywhere. If you let wild yeast in your beer, you are not going to get a beer flavor. You're going to get something you don't want. Okay. Some harshness, some, you know, off flavors, tastes like uh, turpentine. You know, it's when your beer comes out like that, you, something's unsanitary happened in your process. Got it. Okay. All right. So you, you transfer this, uh, boiled wort to a fermenter and in normally in that transfer process you cool it down um, i have a 
I have a little miniature radiator, just like the radiator of a car. And it works amazing. In five minutes, I've got 10, you know, eight gallons of hot liquid down to 65 degrees Fahrenheit. Are you running antifreeze through the small radiator? No, you just water, cold just water. Cold water. All so right. it's a counterflow chiller. Got water it. goes in one side and out the other, comes out hot water. And your work goes in one side and comes out cold. Hmm. And it goes right in your fermenter and you're, you're ready to um, pitch the yeast. No, just a side item. You're a mechanical engineer. You have a master's yeah. in mechanical engineering. Is what you just described as having a small radiator um, uh, common amongst home brewers, or is that a John Huber special? Um, that is a. Uh, it's not cheap. It's an expensive piece of equipment. Got it. Okay, so brewers, all brewers, use those. All Big, right. You know, all brewers use those because they do what's called a full work boil. If you're just starting out and you don't have a lot of fancy equipment, you can do a small boil on, on the stove, like three and a half gallons. Then you top it off with cold water and put it in the fermenter. Mm. It's not as sanitary, but if you're careful about the water um, and the vessel you're holding it in and you run the tap for a while, you can get fairly clean water out without having to boil it. Some people okay. boil the night before and let it cool to room temperature. And that sort of, you get all of the chlorination out of it and stuff from the tap water. Got it. Okay. Um, if you're doing a full wort boil, which is the full volume, um, you have to have a cooling step. There's also a, another way in home brewing where you can, you, there's an immersion chiller where you take a copper coil that, um, you know, the kind that a lot of people hook up their refrigerator to the water source yes, yes. in their house so they can have water and out yeah. of an ice cube maker and stuff. Um, you take that coil and bend it into a circle and you have an inlet and an outlet and you run cold water through that coil and you dip it down in your beer and you stir and that cool. It takes that. about 40 minutes. Okay. But it works it works just fine. Got and it. it's much cheaper than a a little radiator that I bought, but All right. Like I said, each time you go to the homebrew store, you can buy a new piece of equipment. <laughs> you save your pennies and you can buy one of these uh super chillers. All right. So we're coming out of the boil phase and we're entering fermentation. Fermentation, right? All right. And we had to cool it. So the fourth leg of the stool is the yeast. Um, and you buy the beautiful thing about homebrewing in this modern era is they sell you a huge variety of liquid yeast packs. Each one adds its own character to the beer. Depending on the style you're brewing, you, you buy different yeast, um, and you, you activate the yeast, uh, in the morning and by the afternoon, it's ready to go. If it's an ale, how do you activate it? Um, Yeast wants nutrients to start um, waking up and actually fermenting. So these packs come in a little foil, sealed foil pack under sterile conditions. The, the white, white labs or the Y yeast uh, companies will supply those to you in their sterile environments. And inside is another pack. It's a little, uh, it's a little packet within, a, within the packet. Got it. You set that on the counter, you feel until you find that little packet, and you press really hard until it breaks. Ah. 
that breaks open and sort of releases a little miniature pack of wort and yeast nutrient. Got it. And that wakes the yeast up. And then this foil pack, it started out, when you bought it, it was flat. You activate it in the morning of your brewing day, and by the afternoon, it's all swollen up. Okay. Because that there's a little mini fermentation going on, sort of and it's giving off CO2 gas and filling it up with uh, with uh, CO2. Okay. So you, you uh, cut open that pack, and you put it in your fermenter, and um, you want to aerate that with oxygen so you shake it all around and because yeast likes oxygen as part of their um, process and you let it ferment and you have to put what's called an airlock on it it's a little um it's a little device that lets gas out but does not let air back in and so imagine um i don't have a good analogy you kind of like an exhaust Right, but it, it's got a little bit of uh, water in it. It's a container with water in it, and then you have a, a stem sticking up through the water, and the top of the stem sticks above the water level. Then you put a cup on top of that. So uh, the air out, the outside air in your environment cannot get in. Okay. But this thing th- that when it ferments, this process is going to give off CO2 gas. That can bubble out from under that cup. Got it. No problem. All right. So it's a one That's way. called an airlock. All right. So when that thing is bubbling nicely, that's a good feeling for a brewer because he knows it's working. Okay. All right. If it takes more than a day to start bubbling, you start getting nervous. Something's wrong. The oh. yeast was not viable. Maybe you got an old pack of yeast or whatever. Okay. Um, so... Um, there's there's two stages of fermentation, primary and secondary. Primary is the firm is the is the is the most active and um, it bubbles like crazy and gets through most of it. And throughout this process, um, you're letting it sit nicely on the counter and and not messing with it. And it's the solids are dropping out of suspension and going to the bottom. And that layer of Solids and dead yeast cells, and that is called trube. Another new You're term. letting the trube drop out okay. and go and settle to the bottom while it's fermenting. Is that waste essentially? Um, yeah, we're not going to use it. Some pe- it does have um, repitchable yeast in it, and yeast is not cheap, especially if you're buying it in quantities to make you know multi-barrel sizes of beer. So a brewer. A big scale brewer will repitch that yeast. They'll harvest off the bottom of the fermenter um, that those um, and they those yeast cells that have just gone to sleep. They're still good, but they have done all they can do in this batch of beer. Now they go to sleep and fall to the bottom. Got it. You harvest those off and pitch them in the next batch. So you okay. sort of repitch. There's a there's a sort of a number of times depending on how sanitary you are at treating that yeast you can repitch it several times. So the term pitching because I'll hear brewers talk about I need a pitch of yeast. The the, the term pitching in and of itself is saying <clears throat> I'm gonna sorry I'm gonna throw it into the mixture. Like what is the term pitching in of itself as a verb or as yeah. a noun? Yeah. Um, 
because you you just I don't know why it. they call it pitching. That's the term. Okay. All right. Got it. Just you're not throwing that. it across the room. <laughs> you're pouring it into your wort. All right. Okay. Uh, or actually, yeah, you're pouring it into your fermenter with your freshly boiled wort. Got it. Okay. So secondary fermentation is when you draw off the liquid off the top of that tube and put it in another vessel and just let the last little remnants of fermentation happen. So there's still a little bit of activity going on. And especially if it's a lager beer, there's two, there's two major kinds of beer, ale and lager. Okay. And it, that is purely a function of the yeast. Um, the original yeast strains were all ale yeasts. They're very easy to brew with. They, they ferment at room temperature. They're very forgiving. They're very hearty. And all of the British styles are ales. So what's an example commercially that we would recognize as a type of a um, popular brand or? Well, uh, most of the microbrewed beer is an ale. Um, red ales, uh, porters, stouts, um, IPA. Okay. Those are all ales. They're Got made it. with ale yeast. That's so under a genre of called. Right. Ale. And yeah. um most of the beers that are lagers will say lager on them. Hmm. Pilsner is a lager. Okay. Um, a, a good German Pilsner is made with lager yeast. Lager yeast is is a little harder as a home brewer to brew with. Um, it ferments at a colder temperature, 45 degrees instead of 65. And um, it's very delicate. Uh, you can... You can mess it up if you're not careful. Ale yeast is very robust and reliable. Lager yeast is delicate. It doesn't ferment real actively, so the bubbles are not coming real. Unless you have experience with the lager, your first lager makes you a little nervous because you really need to ferment it in a cold place, like a dedicated temperature-controlled refrigerator. Okay. And um, it's not going to bubble like crazy. So you're always wondering, like, is this done or not? Mm. Um, the term lagering means to cold store. That's where that name comes from. Okay. And after you've uh, let your fermentation, after your primary fermentation for a lager, you put it in cold storage, let it continue to finish its fermentation, but you slowly drop the temperature all the way down to almost freezing. And that is called lagering. And that's sort of a critical step for a good lager. Um, so a Pilsner beer is a very uh, delicate, precise beer. It has a very, um, it, it doesn't have a very strong, robust flavor like an ale. And um, Germans pride themselves on their lagers. Okay. They're very, um, scientific uh culturally germans are very precise and mm -hmm. scientific yeah um and so they are famous for their german pilsners so hefeweizens are also a um, variety of, of uh hefeweizen is actually uh or is that an ale i think it's i'm pretty sure it's an ale okay but uh weizen is the german word for yeast 
Ah, okay. So hefe weizen means with yeast. Got it. And a hefe weizen is a kind of yeast that um, keeps itself in. It makes a very cloudy beer, and it keeps it in suspension. And it has sort of a banana, a beautiful banana ester clove flavor. Got it. Um, so hefeweizen means with yeast. So that yeast is very dominant in that. And so you don't brew, and it's generally a wheat beer. We haven't talked about wheat. We've talked about barley. Barley, right. Yeah. Wheat is also um, brewed with, but you cannot have a beer that's 100% wheat. Um, it doesn't have the properties needed. It doesn't have the properties needed to make a, a beer. Um, you'll get stuck a sparging step, your your grain bed will get stuck. Um, it's gummy. We use it for bread because it holds the bread together and gives it its shape. Mm. Wheat is a is a primary ingredient for for bread. Right. But barley is more akin or more friendly to brewing than than wheat is. Got it. So when you drink a wheat beer, it's actually only a percentage of the malt grain or Got the malt it. bill is the wheat. So there's the one, take, one takeaway out of this. Barley is always present. Is Yeah. Okay, in beer. You there's have... three kinds of grains that people generally brew with. Predominant one is barley. Second most popular is a wheat mm -hmm. additive. And the third is a rye. Okay. You can use rye grains. But I, I don't believe you can brew with 100% rye either. You need to have, as most of your basis malt needs to be barley. Got it. Okay. All right. Good to know. Fun fact. So, so the last step. Hopefully, I'm not talking too much about this stuff. No, this is this is um, very sequential and clear on the process. Okay. Good. I'm glad you glad you feel that way. Yeah. So the last step after it's done fermenting is you put it in your storage or your serving container. That's either by bottling it or putting it in a keg. Um, the, most home brewers, when they're first starting out, they bottle their beers. And I, I don't need to go into all of those steps, but I will talk about something called conditioning. When, you, when your fermentation is complete and you, you, there's a term called racking, that's where you siphon the, the liquid off of any solid or sediment. Racking is transferring liquid from one vessel to another, basically. Got it. Okay. And you have a racking cane. So you have a stiff plastic cane that you put down in your um, fermenter, and then the end of it has a soft uh, rubber tube that goes to your outlet. Okay. So you can aim that wherever you need to aim it, and you start a siphon or a gravity um, fed, and you transfer the beer with a racking. So that cane is called a it's called a cane because it's a plastic rod that comes up and then curls around, so it hooks itself on top of your Got it. fermenter. But we're we're fundamentally talking now. We're extracting the sweet nectar now that it's, we've been working. No, that's not sweet anymore. Well, sorry, sorry. Uh, just fermentation ate all that sugar. Okay. The only residual sweetness you're going to get is um, is uh, from malts like specialty malts like crystal malt, things that were unfermentable. There's the notion of unfermentable sugar. That is the way you get sweetness in a beer. Okay. Um, and so if you think of a sugar chain, I'll do Mr. Chemistry for a second. A, a sugar chain is, is got a length to it. 
very, very long sugar chains are too complex for yeast to eat. So they basically bounce off them and, and stay in suspension. Short little sugar chains is what the yeast like, and they ferment that up and, and completely 100%. Okay. So if you want a dry beer, you want to have a lot of simple sugars in your, in your boil, in your wort. If you want a sweet beer, you need to give it complex sugars that won't ferment. So the sugar survives. And it's the same with the wine industry. Um, I don't know all of the chemistry about wine, but I know there is, there's a dry wine and there's a sweet wine. Right. Okay. And it has to do with whether the sugars are fermentable or not. Nice. In wine, actually, they stop the fermentation. For a dessert wine, they literally stop it before it completes. Hmm. And so that that's a way in wine where you control the end sweetness of your of your wine. All right. Nice. Beer, it's fermented to completion. There's no stopping it. Um, I've not heard of that step. But you're now where you were saying on conditioning, where the where the cane, um, what was it called? The device again? The racking cane. The racking yeah. cane. You're now extracting essentially your final product. Yeah, except it's not carbonated. Uh, it's flat. Okay. So the carbonation is uh, a modern invention. When I say modern, the the original ales throughout history, you know, in the very early years, in the, the early the Vikings, <laughs> uh, they didn't have a carbonation step. Any carbonation in the beer was was sort of a natural. In fact, um, beer in a in an in authentic English pub was stored in the cellar down below the bar in the in sort of a chilled environment and it was still go undergoing fermentation while it was in the keg while it was in the serving keg so some of the co2 would stay in suspension there so carbonation is all about taking a gas and forcing it into the liquid okay so that and and it's usually under pressure so when you open a bottle of a beer or a bottle of pop that have all been have been carbonated, mm-hmm. it starts bubbling. That's the gas coming out of suspension and, and rising to the top. Got it. So a nice beer will have bubbles around the edge of the glass and you'll see them rising out as soon as you pour it. That's a nicely carbonated beer. And, and see carbonation gives you a mouthfeel like a sharp crispness that a flat beer does not. Hmm. So it's sort of like the final step in making a good beer is getting the carbonation just right. Is the carbonation more for the experience of the taste or is it doing something else in terms of the physical quality of what you fermented? Um, I mean, is it more kind of, it's, you know, like a, a discretionary type of thing in the chemistry experiment? It's more about mouthfeel. You do push the beer out of the keg with CO2. Okay. If you think back to the days of partying in college, mm-hmm. you, you buy a keg of beer, you plan on drinking it all that night at your party. <laughs> right. You have those hand pumps. Yes. There is no CO2 bottle. You're literally putting outside air into the keg. So if you do not drink that that night, it's going to turn skunky. It's going to spoil because of all the bacteria and the unsanitariness of it. Got it. It'll go flat and it'll spoil. Okay. 
So when you go to a bar that's serving beer at the proper temperature with the proper equipment, they have a CO2 bottle that's holding the pressure of the keg so that you don't lose your carbonation. And it's, it's a, it replaces the volume of beer that you're drawing off from the tap. So you're pushing the beer out with CO2 gas. Got it. So it happens to be the same gas that's in suspension in the beer itself. Got it. So the brewer is going to condition it before they ship it. Conditioning happens at the brewery before it's shipped to the serving places. And then CO2 is also used to push the beer out of the keg. Um, Bottle conditioning for a home brewer, what you do is you take a little tiny measured amount of sugar, usually corn sugar, put it in your freshly fermented beer, stir it up, and you bottle it and, and cap it. And a little mini fermentation happens in the bottle. Okay. And it builds up its own CO2. It forces the CO2 into suspension. Okay. That's called natural conditioning or okay. bottle conditioning. Okay. In a keg, which is a little more advanced, you put the flat beer directly in the keg all in one shot. It's so much easier than bottling it individually. All right. Once you keg, you'll never go back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> then what you do is you crank up that CO2 pressure to an unnatural level. You wouldn't want to serve the beer at that pressure. It'll all come out foam. It'll, okay. But you crank it up to above, you know, 15 PSI. There's tables and you can get very scientific about it. I just crank it up above 15. You let it, let it relax and chill in your beer fridge. And slowly that CO2 will get forced into the beer. So you have one every once in a while, a little sample. And when the carbonation level is right, you dial that CO2 pressure back to 5 PSI, just enough to push the beer out, Okay. and it's ready. So you've got a keg in your fridge. You've got a device on the outside of it that's pushing CO2 into it, trying to physically see what I'm hearing. Yeah, so usually you have this bottle with a regulator, and it's got two dials on it. One is the pressure of the contents of the bottle itself Mm -hmm. which will be you know 500 psi it's under a lot of pressure okay second one is the outlet pressure what you're serving it at what you're letting it out as and you can adjust that pressure got it um and that outlet line goes to the top of your keg got it to the gas in okay so a keg has two ports gas in Mm -hmm. and beer out Okay. And the beer out has a dip tube that goes all the way to the bottom. So you're drawing beer off the bottom and sending it out, and you're pushing gas in from the top. Got it. All right. That's the mental picture of a keg. Okay. All right. The second less common uh, gas that you can, I'll call it carbonate or condition your beer with, is nitrogen. So we're, we're back to your Guinness Mouthfeel yes. question. Smooth? Why is a black patent malt that's been burnt to a crisp really smooth and not bitter in my mouth? Um, well, maybe it's carbonation gives a very. I told you, car, CO two gives you a sharp sort of crispness to the beer. Mm-hmm. If you use NO two, which is nitrogen, nitrogen, okay, the bubbles are smaller. 
Okay. Little, imagine little tiny bubbles. They become like a nice soft pillow. They give you a very smooth mouthfeel. There's no sharp crispness of CO2 like a bottle of soda pop. It's, it's more like a, a glass of milk. Okay. It's very smooth. And you literally condition the keg with a nitrogen bottle. You can buy those. Homebrew stores will sell them to you. And you can have your beer on nitrogen. So if you order a beer that's on nitrogen, you're going to get a very smooth mouthfeel. And typically the head of the beer will be very creamy with with little tiny bubbles. Ah, right. That's what a Guinness head looks like. And it's got right. that beautiful swirl, that black and tan. That's right. And when it's poured into the glass, it's it's got a very even and you know, it's just more of an eloquent look on the on the head compared and to And by that. the way, when you buy Guinness in a can, mm-hmm. they have a widget in there. Um, because nitrogen does not create its own head very readily. So um, it needs to be agitated one time, either as you're pouring it or as you uh, open the bottle, up in the can. Okay. So there's a little widget inside there. I think it's full of gas and it has a little pinhole in it. Yeah. When you open the can and relieve the pressure inside the can, all the gas comes out of that widget and bubbles and causes a little temporary turbulence. Got it. You can hear it bubble when you first open it. Okay. You need to pour that in a glass right away. Don't open a can of Guinness and drink right out of the can. Okay. That's a hillbilly practice. <laughs> you need to have a glass, yeah. be civilized, have a glass, open your Guinness, yeah. let it bubble real quick and pour it immediately into a into a glass okay. and you'll get that beautiful creamy head yep. and it's actually um, mixing with it. almost the full height of the, the glass will have this mixing going on. So you're getting really the full benefit of that nitrogen. Right. Um, right. Additive, you know, so yeah. that's part of the enjoyment of having a Guinness is okay. uh, All right. having that. Very. Cool. We're at the end of our lesson, boys and girls. 